Amen. Church family, you may be seated. And for the 47th and final time, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the very last chapter, chapter 50. This morning, we're going to be in verses 15 through 26. This is our final sermon in this series. And so let me tell you what is coming up next Sunday, as we often do, even in the midst of longer series or certainly in between them, uh, we will break in the Psalms. We will be in Psalm 65 next Sunday morning. If you would like to read ahead, I know many of you uh, do. So if you would like to ponder and dwell upon that Psalm uh, this week, and here's what I'm excited about. For the first time, at least in my tenure here as pastor, one of our non-vocational elders will be preaching next Sunday morning. That is something that I have encouraged some of them to consider doing uh, for some time now. And one has finally taken me up on that offer. I'm not going to tell you who. You have to come next week and find out. But one of our uh, non-paid elders, uh, pastors, will be uh, preaching from Psalm 65 next Sunday. And then on July the 11th, I will begin a new series in First and Second Thessalonians. In this series, we're going to uh, consider the instructions of the Apostle Paul concerning past faith, present responsibility, and future realities. And so we're excited about that. That series is going to take us about five months to get through those uh, consecutive books in the New Testament. Uh, we will have the ESV scripture journals. They were supposed to be here today. We had a problem with delivery at the end of the week, and so they will uh, be here next week. Uh, so if you like keeping all of your notes in one place. We've done that for the last several series. We will have those available for you starting next week. You can pick one up on the 4th or on the 11th. Uh, and we look forward to uh, both being in Psalm 65 next Sunday and then starting that new series in First and Second Thessalonians. And also, as you look around the room today, you may notice that uh, very few of our teenagers are here because most of them are at youth camp. On Thursday, Pastor Michael and several uh, of our student ministry volunteers loaded up uh, with uh, a number of our teenagers and went down to Ridgecrest in Black Mountain, North Carolina, and they have been at Centrifuge Camp this week. They, uh, today is their last full day at camp. They'll return tomorrow, but we want to be sure that we pray for them this morning, and I'll do so after we stand and read our text. So would you stand with me? We're going to re begin reading in Genesis 50, verse 15, down through uh, the end of the book. This is the word of the Lord. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and will pay us back for all of the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, 
but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to you for your written word to your church, that we may learn from it and be encouraged by it, instructed in life and godliness. We thank you, God, for the last year that we have considered this first book of the Bible. I pray, God, that over this time, lives were changed, people became more resolved, that we together became more resolved in our faith as we will see again in this final instruction. We thank you, God, for how your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, changes our lives as we week in and week out consume of it. Final day that they will be together in Bible study, instruction uh, in the word of God. Would we, would we continue to hear reports? We thank you, God, for what we have already heard, that at least one of our students has professed newfound faith in Jesus Christ, and we ask that... Uh, you would draw more to yourself, that you would continue to do the work that only you can do, continue to change young lives and set them on a trajectory of gospel influence throughout the generations, we pray. Bless our time now in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As we approach this final section here in the book of Genesis, we see one final resolve. One final story, really, that I believe helps us to understand everything that we have seen before it. That's a little bit of what today's sermon is going to be. I'm going to deal with the text that is before us, but I'm going to allow that text to help us to reflect over the last year to think about the last 46 sermons leading up to this one and the story that God has been telling us because this is the word of God. This is his inspired word written by man but brought to us from God himself. He is and has been throughout this book the main character, the main actor, he is the one who made something from nothing. He is the one for whom all of the, to whom all of this points. And yet God has worked within the generations of Genesis in their faults, in their successes, in their doubts, and in their faith to tell us the beginning of the story of redemption. And Joseph's final interaction with his brothers provides for us a framework for which we can look back on the whole story of Genesis and reflect on what God has been doing through these generations. First, we see a final example of doubting. Back in verse 15 through 18, we read, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and will pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. 
So just stop there for a moment and put ourselves in the context of the story. Joseph and his brothers have been reconciled to one another. This reconciliation took place over the course of several chapters, ultimately leading to all of them and their father Jacob and all of the household in Egypt and actually blessed in Egypt and doing well and thriving in Egypt. And Jacob dies and Joseph and his brothers mourn their father and with the resources of Pharaoh, bring his bones back to Israel and bury him in the same tomb, in the same cave where Abraham and Isaac were buried. They mourned for a very long time. We looked at this last week, that there was a significant amount of mourning over the death of Jacob. But now the whole family has returned. Now they have settled into the realization that Jacob is dead and it is possible that the only thing standing between Joseph, the second most powerful man in the Egyptian empire, and revenge on these brothers was Jacob, who no longer is part of the picture. And so while there was restoration in the previous chapters, as we have seen so often over the course of the 50 chapters of Genesis, doubt slips into the people of God. So look what they do. They sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Now, we don't know if he actually did or not. We don't, we're not, it's not recorded for us that Jacob gave this command. This could be these brothers, and I tend to believe that it is, these brothers falling back into their old ways, falling back into doubt, falling back into suspicion, falling back into the same deception that they had inherited from their father, Jacob. And here's the message they sent. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers, and their sin before they did evil to you, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servant of God, of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him and his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. So there's two interactions that happen here. The first is they send a servant with this message, supposedly saying, Jacob said these things, please forgive your brothers. This brings Joseph to tears. This is not the first or even the second time we've seen Joseph brought to tears uh, over the actions of his brothers. But here he is weeping now over this request from his brothers. And even the brothers then follow up this request by physically coming to Joseph, bowing before him and saying, we are now your servants. They are offering themselves into slavery to Joseph for the price of their lives. All that we have seen in the reconciliation story between Joseph and their brothers is now on the line. And they feel as if this is all that is necessary. And why do they feel this way? Because doubt has crept in. And Joseph's brothers, their doubt shows us the final example of numerous doubt events throughout the course of Genesis. Doubt has been one of the primary uh, themes within this entire book. It actually goes all the way back to the beginning when Adam and Eve were living in perfect communion with God in the garden. And the first temptation was simply this, doubt God. The beginning of Genesis 3 where everything goes wrong, Satan in the form of a serpent comes to 
Eve and says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? One commentator writes that doubt is the tool of Satan to make us lack confidence in God's word and consider his judgment unlikely. And this is exactly what Satan does to Eve and Adam in the garden. He wants them to question God's word and he wants them to question the results of disobeying God's word. That doubt began to creep in in their minds, ultimately leading to sin and death for all mankind. But doubt does not end there. As we continue and progress through the story of Genesis, we saw doubt creep into the people of God on numerous occasions. Another example is in Genesis 16, after God has told Abram and Sarai that he would give them, even in their old age, a child. Sarai crafts her own scheme and gets Abraham to go along with him. We read in Genesis 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, behold, now go. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Abram and Sarai doubted the Lord God would give them a child in their old age. They doubted the word of God. Even faced with a, what is known as a theophany, where a physical appearance of God before Abraham and Sarah, after their names have been changed, she still doubts. We get into Genesis 18 and we read, then they said to him, this is the Lord and his servants, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The ways, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? It's anything too hard for the Lord. At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, because he is God, no, but you did laugh. God knew the doubt that had crept into both Sarah's life and Abraham's life. You fast forward to their grandchildren at a young age, Jacob and his brother Esau. Esau, the firstborn, who, had, who deserves the birthright, comes in from the field, we're told in Genesis 25, and Jacob was cooking stew and Esau was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew for I'm exhausted. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? This is an example again of doubting. Esau doubted that as the firstborn, the Lord would sustain him, making his birthright meaningful. You see, throughout Genesis, surrounded by the promises and fulfillment of the Lord, the generations of God's people regularly doubted God. Abraham went down to Egypt during famine. He lied about his wife, Sarah, saying he was my sister twice. Then Isaac, his son, does the same thing concerning his wife, Rebekah. Rebekah then doubts that the Lord's promise to her younger son would receive the promise of God, so she leads him to scheme against his father. Throughout Genesis, we see people doubting God, doubting God's word, all giving in to the temptation that is whispered in all of our ears. Did God really say? And one final time here in Genesis 50, 
After the death of Jacob, the brothers of Joseph gathered together and, the, and they began to doubt. And doubt creeps in and they find themselves prostrate before Joseph saying, we will be your slaves if you will only keep us alive. But the remedy for all of this doubt, not only the doubt here in Genesis 50, but the remedy for all of the doubt going back to Genesis 3 is provided here in this story with Joseph. The remedy for doubt is faith. And we see a final example of faith in two things. First, in the plan of God. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So they send this messenger, supposedly with a message from Jacob after his death. Don't you know, forgive your brothers. Then they come and fall before him. Joseph is weeping at this point, And here's what he says to them in verse 19. I am in the place of God. Now, careful there. He is not saying, I have the power of God. He's saying, I am where God wants me to be. So often in our series in Genesis, we've looked forward to this, this, final, um, this, this final part and, and this verse that tells us that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because this is a concluding idea to this narrative that God has been weaving now for 50 chapters. That when doubt creeps in, it causes people to do evil things. It caused Adam and Eve to sin against God in the garden. And then throughout the generations of Genesis, it caused evil, poor choices, sin, brother against brother, husband against wife, father or son against father, brother against brother. But then... Doubt is overcome by faith. And the doubt of Joseph's brothers is overcome by the faith of Joseph. When he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I am where God wanted me to be. This is, this is an important, this is why I've probably read this verse in our series in Genesis more than just about any other. Because this is an important concept for us to understand on this, during this last sermon. That yes, we are all going to be faced with the temptation to question the word of God. We're all going to be faced with the temptation to question our present situation and wonder, is God really at work? Is God still doing what he has said he will do in, in light of the turmoil and strife and persecution that, that I may be presently dealing with in my life? And the answer is a resounding yes. And we don't only see it from Joseph. We have seen faith overcome doubt throughout the generations of Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 4, once sin has entered the world, two sons are born to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and one kills the other. So it seems as if maybe the line of faith is already dead. And yet at the end of Genesis 4 and verse 25, we read Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed Abel. This first 
picture of a profession of faith in the plan of God comes from Eve, the mother of humanity, saying God has provided. God has appointed to be another offspring. God has been faithful to keep his word and to work his plan. We fast forward to Genesis 7, where Noah not only builds an ark, we're told, but then gets in it. In Genesis 7, verse 1, the Lord told Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in the generations. And we go to verse 5, And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. That we see doubt overcome by faith in the plan of God. Could you imagine being constructed to do what Noah did? Surrounded by such great evil to listen to the voice of the Lord in such a monumental task and Noah still does it. He believes that God has a plan. Then we get to Abraham. Abraham demonstrates the same type of faith in the plan of God when his household and the household of his nephew Lot had outgrown the ability to all stay together and it was causing infighting between the two groups. And so Abraham and Lot go up to the Lord, takes them up to a high place. And this is what we read in Genesis 13. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere in the, uh, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. You notice what Abraham says at the beginning of that? He says, you pick Lot, you pick the left, I'm going to go right. You pick right, I'm going to go left. Here's what Abraham is saying. God's got a plan and I'm going to trust in it. I don't need to force my way. I can believe that whatever you choose is part of what God has for me. Abraham was willing to allow Lot to pick from the land because God's plan would not be derailed by something as simple as I'm going to settle in the east or in the west. We get to Genesis 22. God has given Abraham and Sarah a child. And God tells Abraham when his child Isaac is still young to take him up on a mountain to sacrifice him to the Lord. And we read in verses seven and eight that Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Even in this greatest test in Abraham's life, he had faith in the plan of God because faith is the remedy to our doubt faith that the Lord will work, faith that the Lord will continue to do what he has set out to do, that what has happened throughout these generations in Genesis was according to the plan of God. And this is just the first book of the Bible. We see the plan of God continue to unfold century after century, generation after generation, as God continues to work his plan of redemption. But God is not this, this detached worker of a plan. 
He's, he's not just up there moving the pieces around as if they are pieces on a chessboard. This is more than just some mundane plan or some detached plan by some grand master worker. God is attached to those whom he is working in. And he has made promises to those to whom he is working in. So it is not only in faith that the Lord will work his plan, but also faith that the Lord will keep his word, that the promises of God will be fulfilled. And that is the final thing we see here in Genesis 50 is one final example of faith in the promise of God. Pick back up in verses 22 of Genesis 50. So Joseph remained in Egypt he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. Then the, the children also of Machar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt." You know that so often we read these, this last paragraph, verses 23 through 26 of Genesis, almost as if it's a footnote. It's just telling us how he died. He left some basic instructions. We almost think as if the story of Joseph is over before this point. I've had so many of you tell me that you were anticipating us getting to Joseph, that, that this was, uh, of all of the stories in Genesis, he, he, this was the story you liked the most that you were looking forward to Joseph's time in, in Egypt and all that God does. And there's some incredible things that God does, right? He, Joseph rises to prominence in Potiphar's house, is brought low in prison. He rises to prominence again in uh, Pharaoh's house, rises to the point of second in command, interprets dreams that saves millions of people, ultimately restoring him to his family. But the author of Hebrews... In Hebrews 11, which tells us, it re recounts the, the faith of the generations past, of the saints of the Old Testament, doesn't recount any of that part of the story of Joseph. He doesn't focus on jo the author of Hebrews talking about Joseph's faith, doesn't talk about his time in Potiphar's house or his time in prison or his time in Pharaoh's house. He doesn't talk about how he saves all of the people in the uh, kingdom of Egypt and even beyond. He doesn't talk about how he was restored to his brothers. Do you know what the author of Hebrews talks about? Only one thing about Joseph do we get. Look at Hebrews eleven twenty two 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, after all of these other things that are so well known about Joseph happened, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Listen, don't think of this last paragraph in Genesis as some type of little tag on the end to just tell us that Joseph died. According to the author of Hebrews, this is Joseph's greatest moment of faith. This stands out above all else that we've seen Joseph do because it's looking beyond himself and believing that God will keep his promise. 
He believes that God will not allow his promise to die in Egypt. But he says, I am about to die. And when that happens, you need to, I am about to die. And at some point, God will bring you out of this land. And when that happens, you need to bring my bones with you and bury me in the land that God has sworn to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Joseph didn't just trust in the plan of God in the the moments of his life. He trusted in the future fulfillment of the promise of God, something he would not see with his physical eyes. But understand something. This is not new just to Joseph. This has been a running theme. The true thread of redemption in Genesis has been and will always be the belief that God will keep promises even if we don't know how he will do it and even if we don't live to see him do it. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through four, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and to your kindred and to your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the family and in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. At 75, having already established a home and a family, and a place, and a land, God says to Abram, go. I'm not gonna tell you where, but I want you to go. And Abram believed that God would keep his promise. Later in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And notice this, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Faith and faith alone is what is credited to the saints of Genesis as righteousness. It is faith in the promise, it is faith in God's ability to keep his promise even beyond that which we can see that provided righteousness for Abraham, that provided righteousness for Isaac, that provided righteousness for Jacob, and ultimately provided righteousness for Joseph. This is why the author of Hebrews looks back on this final moment in Joseph's life and says this is his greatest moment of faith. This is his greatest triumph of faith is that he believed that God would not allow his promise to die in Egypt. It was by faith alone that the people in Genesis were made right with God. And it is by faith alone that you and I are made right with God. Looking at the same thing. They were looking forward to the fulfilled promise of God. And we are looking back on the fulfilled promise of God. All saved in the same way. By faith, which is credited to us as Righteousness And the Lord here in Genesis 50, in these closing words, provides us one final glimpse of the future faith that the generations of Genesis have and that we share with them. So what? We can have unwavering faith that the Lord has kept his promise and in the goodness of his righteous plan. You notice here, unwavering faith. Listen, our world will tell you that doubt is natural. 
our world will tell you that to doubt is really human. It's what makes us human, to question things. And some of us have minds that just naturally question everything. But know something. Doubt is not something you have to deal with forever. You can. I believe this in the core of my being. I believe this is what one of the primary things we should take away from Genesis. You can have unwavering faith that God will keep his promise and that his plan is good. That this is what God is teaching us in Genesis. That we can believe it. That we can believe the Lord. And that faith that we have from God, that is a gift from God for us in how he has kept his promises and how he has fulfilled his plan is what saves us. And this goes all the way back again to the beginning of Genesis where God has in that moment of disobedience in the life of Adam and Eve and in the following judgment, God plants a seed This is the seed that he plants in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All the way back in the beginning stories of Genesis, God makes a promise. Tucked right in there, the first sin and the first pronouncement of judgment. Tucked right in the middle of that is the seed of a promise of God that one day God would provide someone in the generations of faith going all the way back to the people of Genesis who would crush the head of the serpent, who would crush the head of the tempter, who would crush the head of the one who would lead us to doubt. God has promised In Genesis 3, that he would do that. And throughout the chapters of Genesis, God continued to unfold that promise, continued to make it clear to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to the sons of Israel that through them he would accomplish his purposes. And in faith, they looked forward and believed that. And here's the benefit we have. We don't have to look forward and believe what they believed. We can look backwards on the fulfilled work of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Him there is Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Genesis 3.15 begins the promises of God to provide one who would crush the head of the serpent. And time after time in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, God continues to build upon that promises, on, the, on, on that initial promise and on the promises that would come. And then all of them make a beeline to Jesus on the cross. All of them, we're told by the Apostle Paul, find their yes in Jesus. And because they find their yes in Jesus, Paul says, it then establishes us together in Christ. That we then, the full counsel of the people of God, Old Testament believing in the future fulfillment of the promise and New Testament people believing in the fulfillment in Jesus, 
all of us then sealed in him. We have the promised Holy Spirit, those of us that are saved after the day of Pentecost, providing for us a guarantee, a seal of approval of God, that which cannot be broken, that which is brought into our lives by the power of God according to his grace and the faith that he has given us, that if we will believe in Jesus Christ, we are believing in the fulfilled promise of God and we can then have unwavering faith that God has kept his word and that God has done what he promised to do. I don't know that I mentioned this in the 47 sermons that I preached on, but I've preached through Genesis before. Years ago, I preached the same way that I preach now when I, in the 17 years that I did student ministry. Um, and years ago, I preached through Genesis. Years and years ago, I preached through Genesis. And I walked away as, as a much younger man at that point uh, with, with this kind of as my wrap up for all of Genesis, that God is going to do what God is going to do. That was kind of the wrap up that I walked away with in my probably late 20s at that point when I preached through Genesis. I walk away with a little different wrap up now. I think I know the word of God a little better. I think I see a little bit more of what God is doing. I hope as we've walked through this, even if you've read through Genesis numerous times, hopefully as we've walked through this, God has continued to bring you deeper into faith and enlighten your eyes to, to his instruction in the word. And, and he has for me. So I would change that from saying that my summation is that God is going to do what God is going to do to this. God has done what he has promised to do. I don't have to refer to it in the future tense anymore. God has done it in Jesus. That we look back on Jesus and say, yes, the promises of God are kept. So we come together today, Christians, the church of God, to remember the fulfilled promise of God. And the way that God has established for us as his church to do so is through the ongoing covenant of the Lord's table. That communion, the Lord's supper, is our ongoing sign of the covenant of God for his people in the New Testament. It is our reminder that the Lord has kept his promise. Now let me say just quickly, only those, but all of those, who have believed in faith alone that Jesus has saved them are welcome at this table. You do not, we do not require church membership for you to come to the table, but we do require you to be a person who has made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So parents, if your children are in here and they have not done so, this is not the moment for you to capitulate and give in because everyone else is doing it. It's a learning moment for them. If you're a guest with us who has professed faith in Jesus, you are welcome at our table. If you have not done so, this table is not for you to participate in, but it is for you to learn from and to see how the people of God remember his kept plan and kept promise to us. So at this point, I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward. I'm going to say a brief prayer over our table and then I will provide instruction for us. Father, we thank you that we can have unwavering faith in your plan, 
purposes and promise kept for us in Jesus. We thank you, God, that you have done this. And we thank you that you have provided for us a reminder, a table. Broken bread and fruit of the vine so that we can remember that you have done what you have promised to do. Would we honor you and glorify you in this time of remembrance, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What I'm going to ask you to do now, church, is rise to your feet. Our worship team is going to sing a new song for us. I encourage you to listen to the words. It reminds us of the Lord's table, and then we will sing it one time together after we take the elements. If you are going to participate uh, in communion with us today, you'll come down the aisles, take one of uh, the communion cups, the cup and bread are together, and return to your seats, and then we will receive the elements together. I invite you to stand and come and receive from the Lord's table.